Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Jalen Avila and I am joined by the one and only doctors, Michael Pratz and Cray Bolger. Mike and Cray, how are y'all doing? What's up, Jalen? Great to be here today. Pretty pumped. Me too. Now, the article that we are going to discuss today is the incidence of diaphragmatic dysfunction in patients presenting with dyspnea in the emergency department. This was published in January of 2023 in the Journal of Ultrasound in Medicine. And it's really fascinating, something that I've thought about a lot, but I haven't actually really, I guess, delved into or dove in. That's a word dove in into before. Before we talk about this, though, I don't know. I like need like a little bit like an appetizer, Mike mm. uh, and, and Cray. Do you mind if I do like a little appetizer? I think we can cook something up. Thinking back, there was this awesome case published December 22, pretty recently, point of care ultrasound in the diagnosis of venous thoracic outlet syndrome. Have either of you diagnosed thoracic outlet syndrome with your point of care ultrasound? I mean, I did two last week. Well, you should have published it then. Snoozy loose. This was a 46-year-old man. He had three weeks of left upper extremity swelling. He came to the emergency department. They were like, hey, your left radial pulse doesn't seem so hot. They did a point of care ultrasound to make sure there was no DVT or any other obvious thing in the soft tissue that they could find. And what they did see, they started up at the IJ. IJ looked good. Then they moved down subclavian and they were like, whoa, this subclavian looks really big and there's like a lot of turbulent blood flow. They kept moving all the way down the upper extremity and it was it was compressible but it was really enlarged and and they provide some really nice pictures with color doppler of all of the veins of the upper extremity and so they deduced that there must be something between the ij and the other the veins in the upper extremity that was compressing it so on the ct angio that they got it showed the left subclavian vein was getting compressed under the clavicle and so therefore they were able to diagnose venous thoracic outlet syndrome and the point of care ultrasound actually helped make that diagnosis so i thought that was pretty cool use. That is pretty neat. They did a nice job writing it up. I think the point of this story is that if there's something that you think is a vascular issue, take a look with your ultrasound, see what's going on with those veins. And since you're a smart doctor, maybe you can figure out the next steps from there. I wonder if they, because I'd look into the pictures and they didn't do a pulse wave Doppler on there. And I wonder if they, it would have had like a similar waveform as what you would do for a upper extremity DVT. Meaning like normally you should see pulsations, like the triphasic pulsations for venous, uh, central venous flow. And I wonder if they would have just seen like that me, just like the normal venous flow that you'll see if you have like a, a proximal obstruction. Um, they did color flow on there and they saw something on the color flow but not on the pulse wave. Okay, so now back to the main course, the incidence of diaphragmatic dysfunction in patients presenting with dyspnea in the emergency department. This study was performed in Thailand and they had an interesting concept. So if you look outside of the emergency medicine literature, you actually see things pop up quite a bit about diaphragmatic dysfunction as a cause of respiratory issues. And what they want to do here is actually study it in the emergency department. Now, what they did is they looked at if patients with the primary complaint of dyspnea had diaphragmatic dysfunction or not. They figured it was a fairly easy, non-invasive way to evaluate for that diaphragmatic dysfunction. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know too much about this. I mean, I understand the concept about it, but fortunately, one of us has actually done an entire talk on this. Is that right, Cray? 
This was part of a talk. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to talk at WinFocus about ultrasound and dyspnea and did some self-education on this exact thing is how do we use diaphragmatic ultrasound? Are we using it enough? Are there opportunities for it? And so I kind of loved when Mike sent this article across because I think this is something we really ask ourselves questions about on a regular basis and maybe not as much in the ED, but especially in the critical care setting. Is this patient extubatable for in the ED, which is something we'll talk about later? Like what about our myasthenia patients, our MS patients, our neuromuscular disorder patients? Like the diaphragms are main concern, right? It's not the lungs. And all of respiratory ultrasound prior to this point really has been focusing on the lungs. So I got super excited about this. As Jalen said, most of the studies prior to this have not been in the ED setting. In fact, there haven't been any studies in the ED setting. And so this article asked the question, what is the incidence of diaphragmatic dysfunction in patients presenting with dyspnea to the emergency department? They had pretty typical inclusion-exclusion criteria. Adults, they had to have tachypnea, so a respiratory rate greater than 22. They had complaint of dyspnea, cardiac arrest patients, pregnant patients, patients who needed immediate intervention, such as non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or intubation, emergently could not be included. And they also excluded patients with COVID. Now, let me clarify a little bit about the design here, because this isn't our typical study. This was a cross-sectional observation study. They did no intervention here. They're just taking a look at this population, trying to figure out how many people's diaphragms are broken. It's pretty simple. And this is a great start because we're, you know, like Jalen and Cray said, we're early on in this type of research in this setting. So they're like just taking a peek. But what's what's going on with these people here? So this was a convenient sample. Only we're able to enroll when the operators were in the emergency department and available. They were blinded to what was going on with this patient at as the treating physicians were also blinded to the ultrasound findings. All the patients that were enrolled in this study had an ultrasound performed within six hours of arrival. That was one of the rules. And they were measuring both the excursion of the diaphragm and the thickness of the diaphragm. We're going to go into more details about that soon. They took a look only at the right diaphragm, just so you know, because based on prior evidence, the right side's pretty good and the left side is harder to get. So let's just do the right side. And then they were trying to collect all the data about what happened to these patients. What diagnoses did they end up with? What treatments did they require? Did they need to be put on oxygen, intubated, go on BiPAP? Were they discharged? And they did a pretty good job following up their hospital course, or if they were discharged, they did a 24-hour follow-up, which I appreciated. And they did a inter-rater reliability as well, which is always nice when you have a newish type of scan to check how well people agree with kind of minimal training. Their primary outcome in this case was the incidence of diaphragm dysfunction. What percentage of these patients with dyspnea in the ED had diaphragm dysfunction? And then secondary outcomes were really cool. They wanted to see people with diaphragm dysfunction, did they require more oxygen or intubation? Did they actually have a higher mortality within seven days? So kind of cool stuff. Now they did do a power analysis and said they would need 246 patients. I'm not going to dive into it, but I didn't quite understand how they did that power analysis since this is just an observational cross-section study, but don't worry about it. They needed to get those patients. And as a spoiler, they did not quite reach that number. Jalen, can you tell me a little bit about how to scan the diaphragm? If I was like, wanted to go into work later tonight and look at someone's diaphragm, what do I, what do I do? What are they measuring? So there's a couple different things. So you can look at the diaphragmatic 
thickness. It's like a ratio of how fat and how skinny it gets. And the other thing is you can look at excursion. Now, if you want to do looking for the diaphragmatic excursion, it was interesting. It's a view that we all kind of like, I think, get on accident sometimes. It's a basically a subcostal view using your, your phase. I, I imagine you probably could use your curvilinear as well, but using your phase and you angle it over towards the right and you're actually trying to shoot towards the back of the diaphragm, kind of behind the liver. And then you throw M mode on there and you look for, you know, if you've identified the diaphragm as a hypercoat kind of border around that liver. And then you hit M mode and there was three different ways that you could do this. You could actually, or that's described, it was a sniff, it was tidal volumes, which is normal respirations or deep respirations. This study specifically, what they did was they just did tidal volumes, normal respirations. And they specifically said the reason we didn't do that is because at first, when we'd have people take deep breaths, it actually would make sometimes make them worse. It would like make their shortness of breath worse or whatever. So they just did like tidal respirations and looked for the peak versus trough of the movement of the diaphragm. So that was diaphragmatic excursion. And then the next thing that they did is they went on the side, basically, with a linear transducer. So I forget if it's exactly mid or posterior axillary line. I'm fairly certain it was mid axillary line um, with that linear transducer. And then they observed a couple respirations there with M mode after they identified the diaphragm there. And then they do how big and small it gets, basically, and then use a calculation to look at the uh, percent change in the thickness of that diaphragm. So those are the two ways that you might do it. You can do the diaphragmatic excursion in several different planes. So this was the way they chose to do it, but I've seen a lot of people do it in the same location you're doing your thickness. So if people are trying to decide applicability or I've never gotten this accidental view of the diaphragm posterior to subxiphoid view, you can do the same motion laterally as well. Well, I'm sure that some of our listeners are thinking like, that sounds kind of tricky. I've never tried that before. I've never paid attention to the diaphragm like that. And I just want to tell you that the people that did this study, they seemed pretty novice as well. It was two resident physicians. I mean, there was two ultrasound trained emergency physicians and two resident physicians. They had all done at least 25 diaphragm ultrasound sessions. And I think they did like a little learning about it beforehand. But almost 99% of these ultimately were done by those residents who had were not like ultrasound experts. So keep that in mind as we go through this. It seems pretty feasible, even if you haven't done it before. As Mike mentioned, they did not actually get to their power level. So they had 317 eligible patients, but they had to take 54 of those patients out for need for a respiratory intervention or that the pictures just weren't good enough. So they ended up just below their power level at an end of 237. Of those patients, almost 19% required respiratory support in the first 24 hours. Nearly 14% died at a week. 28% were converted to DNR status. They had a pretty good mix as far as like average patient population, men versus women, BMI, the average respiratory rate was 33. So these were a sicker patient population, which I think is important to keep in mind. And they, 51% of them had been intubated before, which again, is kind of telling of the protoplasm of this patient population. I was surprised by how sick these patients were too. And I'm wondering if it's because their inclusion criteria necessitated a respiratory rate over 24 breaths per minute. And maybe that like helped filter out some of like the non-sick dysmic patients. Yeah, no, I, I kind of like that idea. Because I mean, most places they will exclude the sicker patients, right? But this study did the opposite. I don't know. Because my do you want to see your healthy people who might get sick? But that's up for us to discuss at the end. You know me, always the contrarian. <laughs> so how about their primary outcome? What'd they find, Craig? 
43% had at least one criteria, about an even split between thickness criteria versus excursion criteria. So 22.5% had limited excursion, 32% had altered thickness, delta in their thickness from inspiration to expiration, and 11.5% had both criteria. The place they found the most common diaphragm dysfunction is cancer patients and then those with respiratory tract infections. I thought it was se- sepsis was a separate like population because like one of the things that they talked about that I thought was like interesting is they said that they were trying to figure out like why there's diaphragmatic dysfunction and then with cancer they were like it was muscle wasting and with sepsis they're like cytokines. When you're explaining it to the patient, well, you see, you have these things called cytokines and uh, they are doing a lot of things in your body right now. So when they looked at how well the study performed, the intraoral reliability, there was a decent kappa. The excursion kappa was 0.87. The thickness kappa was 0.84. And unfortunately, or fortunately, or maybe it's just a TBD, is that the diaphragm dysfunction didn't correlate with any of the outcomes they were looking at. So having diaphragmatic dysfunction wasn't associated with more respiratory distress at 24 hours or respiratory intervention. It wasn't associated with intubation and it didn't have any change with seven-day mortality. There was maybe some trends, but nothing solid and nothing with a good p-value. I think that's like pretty important, right? Is is when I was reading this, I was just, I guess I was trying to figure out like, what is the clinical like significance? Like, great, we're seeing this, right? But what is the clinical significance of this finding? And I, I struggle with it a little bit. I mean, I, I like data. I think all data is good data. But I just struggle with what to do with it. I have a lot of feelings. I know that's not surprising. I'm not convinced they looked at the right patient population to use the scan for. As I teased a little bit in the intro, I think my question, at least clinically, and maybe it's just based on my patient population is what about these neuromuscular patients or what about those patients before they get to Kipnik who I'm using NIFs for right now maybe? Could I use diaphragm dysfunction to do better than a NIF predicting their respiratory compromise or likelihood of declining so I can place them in a more appropriate place, right? So I can say you have poor diaphragmatic discursion, you have a thin diaphragm, and I don't feel comfortable putting you on med surge with your exacerbation of your myasthenia gravis. That's kind of the patient population I would love to see this in. So I think it's great that they're like, hey, ER, you can do this, but I would love to see it done maybe in a different patient population. I agree with you, Cray. It's all about the population that you're studying. I think that in this case, this was a really nice like foundational block of information for us if we're going to build on this with further populations or further data. Like now we know, okay, if you just take all comers with dyspnea in the emergency department, there's a lot of different things that seem like they could potentially cause this dysfunction. And we know potentially based on this, although it was only their secondary outcome, doesn't seem with that population of such a diverse etiologies that it does correlate with anything that we're interested in as far as patient-centered outcomes. So now maybe since we see what we're dealing with in the in the background, all, all patients, now we can maybe parse through this population, try to see who this could help. Because intuitively, it does make sense for a lot of those reasons you mentioned, Craig. This could potentially be predictive. Maybe we just got to find the, the right people. Any other thoughts, Jalen? No, I agree. And Craig, I really appreciate that uh, that insight that this is a great test. This is almost, I mean, could we think about this more as like a feasibility test? Maybe like, hey, we can do this thing, but finding the right patient population to use it, it might be better, right? Because I mean, you know, Mike, I know that you have have some tools, have built stuff. Craig, I'm sure that have you, I don't know if you like are a carpenter as 
as well. I have a jigsaw, right? And I bought this jigsaw in med school. And out of all the saws I have, you guys, it is the least used saw. But in the right situation, it is the most useful saw. That was a beautiful analogy. Dream a little bit with me about the future. Because I I just like, when I was thinking about this, just like you were saying, Jalen, it's just one piece of data. You know, it could be like, you know, the end title CO2, or it could be, you know, some of these little like extraneous pieces of data that maybe they help in certain situations. Maybe they mean nothing. And maybe there's your clinical gestalt will supersede it. But I like, what if a sick patient comes in, in the future, you slap on a transdermal ultrasound on their like right upper quadrant, the AI embedded in it will tell tell you like, here's their diaphragm thickening, here's their excursion. And that's just data points that you can then use to say like, oh, you know what, this patient's going to need BiPAP, I'm going to just start them right now, putting everything together with your exam and history and all the other chest x-ray tool, whatever you want to do, you know, we don't like ultrasound in isolation, but maybe this little point can be valuable in the future. I agree. And I think that's a heavier point about ultrasound is we need to stop asking, can ultrasound serve and save all the world's problems? It is one tool and while it can, otherwise we wouldn't have jobs or validity, but it's one part of the puzzle. And I think that's super important. Let's summarize this study. So this was a cross-sectional study of dysmic patients in the emergency department. Diaphragm dysfunction as measured by POCUS ranged in incidence from 22.4% to up to 43% if you're counting any type of dysfunction. And for the secondary outcomes, there was no correlation with mortality or the need for more intensive respiratory therapies. Our take-home points from this article, diaphragm dysfunction as diagnosed by ultrasound has a fairly high incidence in dyspneic emergency department patients. And it appears that this can be measured with a pretty solid inter-observer agreement after a relatively small amount of training. Now, this study offers no evidence that diaphragm dysfunction prognosticates worse outcomes, but it could have been underpowered for these secondary outcomes, and maybe it's just not the right population. Thanks so much to these authors. Really cool stuff coming out of here. We appreciate it. Great topic. And thank you listeners for tuning in yet again. You can always check out our website, ultrasoundgel.org. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. If you don't know what you're talking about, just yell cytokines. <laughs>